0: There's water where there didn't used to be, and I'm responsible for it. I'm agnostic to the science. We're being presented with problems we have to deal with, and regardless of where you sit on global warming or climate change, the effects are out there, they're real, and we have to deal with them every day.
1: Welcome to Management Matters, a National Academy of Public Administration podcast where policy meets practice. I'm Terry Gurdon, President of the Academy. In April, we focus on our grand challenge to steward natural resources and address climate change. And in this episode, I'll talk with retired United States Coast Guard Admiral Thad Allen about the Coast Guard's role in protecting our maritime resources. Admiral Allen served as the 23rd Commandant of the Coast Guard, and he's currently a senior advisor at Hudson Analytics and a fellow of the Academy. He's also a member of this year's Government Hall of Fame class. Admiral Allen, thanks so much for joining me today.
0: Pleasure to be here. Thank you.
1: And congratulations on the Hall of Fame induction. That's quite an honor. Thank you as well. <laughs> well, I want to start with talking about the Coast Guard because it's a very unique organization when it comes to our national defense structure, and of course you know it from the inside out. So help us understand a little bit about first its mission and how it's organized.
0: I like to tell everybody that the United States Coast Guard is a unique Product of the American Revolution, uh, a lot of people don't understand, but uh, Alexander Hamilton really was the creator of the Coast Guard, and he opined in Federalist Paper Number Twelve that if we were to station ships at our ports and harbors to make sure we could collect the tariffs from the British to offset our war debt, we, they would be useful sentinels of the laws. And I've used that term over and over again, and we've evolved since then through the early combat operations that we were involved in the Quasi War with France in the War of 1812 to have a unique dual character. We're both officers of the customs and law enforcement officers, but we're also a armed force in a military service. It's pretty unique uh, in the world uh, that we have both of those authorities, but it served us well in the dual nature of the Coast Guard. It's allowed us to be flexible and uh, do a lot of things for the service over the year, the country over the years. Uh, in 1915, the Revenue Cutter Service, which was what Alexander Hamilton created, was merged with a life-saving service to form the modern Coast Guard. So the name Coast Guard only dates to 1915, but our actual operations date to 1790.
1: When we think about the mission of the Coast Guard today, it's, as you said, revenue and patrol, but the Coast Guard's actually out there on the front lines of marine environmental issues every day. I mean, you served as the National Incident Commander for Deepwater Horizon oil spill in, in 2010 what is the coast guard learning about the sustainability of our marine environment as a result of the way that they perform their missions
0: well one of the things that sets the coast guard apart from the other military services is that we don't deploy on a mission to do our job uh, we're deployed every day and we serve serve the public actually where we live and operate so we are continually immersed in the operating environment daily whether we whether we're living and work or whatever so we have a unique perspective, not only on where we work in relationship to the maritime environment, but the communities themselves, because we're members of the community. So we're, we're totally, totally immersed in the maritime environment, uh, whether we're at work or at home.
1: And as they're out there, I mean, what do the ships report back on in terms of what they're seeing? And how is that change in the maritime environment affecting their ability to perform their mission?
0: Well, the Coast Guard has 11 basic statutory missions, Uh, And it also includes environmental protection, enforcement of uh, marine resource laws, uh, fisheries, and so forth. So when a Coast Guard operating unit is out there, uh, they're capable of doing any one of the 11 missions. And we can't do them all at once. But we're agile, flexible. We can react to what's going on in the environment when we see it. And we can divert resources from one mission to another as needed. During the Deepwater Horizon oil spill, we diverted vessels that were used to tend uh, aids to navigation, buoy tenders to do oil spill skimming down in the Gulf. That's a pretty good uh, example of how we can pivot and apply resources to the highest need.
1: And so let's talk about some of those 11 missions. Um, One of them is fisheries protection. And that's obviously a subset of the greater marine environment, but I'd love to know more about the Coast Guard's role in monitoring and protecting our ocean fisheries.
0: That we would call it marine resources because uh, it would include not only fisheries, but things like the Marine Mammal Protection Act, marine sanctuaries and so forth. The Coast Guard has been involved in that type of operation since the 1860s when uh, we purchased Alaska from Russia and got involved in trying to manage what was going on with the fur seal trade in Alaska where they were being slaughtered. And ever since then, uh, we've been a primary on-sea enforcement entity for the nation and anything having to do with marine resources and fisheries right now is a is a significant challenge. And not so much inside the waters of the United States because that's a separate challenge, but in the great global commons beyond the uh, economic zones of any of the countries, uh, there's a lot of illegal and fishing going on that's actually devastating to the uh, fish stocks in the oceans of the, of the world. We do a lot uh, in terms of working with other countries to see how we can enforce international fisheries treaties and kind of kind of harness in uh, the illegal activity that's going on out there.
1: How is the illegal activity related to climate change? Are they connected? Is one driving the other? What what sort of are the frontline coast guard units seeing when it comes to the health of the marine fisheries?
0: Well, one of the one of the big issues with marine fisheries right now as the uh, the temperature is rising in the oceans, it's driving fish stocks to places where they've never been before. So it becomes a challenge to understand where the fish stocks are going and trying to stay ahead of the uh, illegal fishing fleets that are out there trying to find them. We're finding that as warm water goes up through the Bering Straits, we're not sure what the long-term implications of that are uh, regarding uh, fisheries uh, above the Bering Straits as you approach the the Arctic Ocean. And right now, uh, there's a, a ban on fisheries north of the Bering Strait while we try and understand the ecology and the, uh, the climate issues that are going on up there. But the fish stocks are moving based on the uh, temperature of the water, and that makes enforcement uh, a little bit more of a challenge.
1: Well, so tell us then a little bit about how the Coast Guard works with other federal agencies and in the international space to protect these critical resources.
0: Well, our, we have two very strong relationships here in the United States. One is with uh, NOAA and the other one is with the EPA. Uh, we are the on-water enforcers of the Clean Water Act and most of the uh, uh, the marine resource uh, statutes that uh, NOAA is responsible for enforcing. We do a lot of enforcement of NOAA's uh, fishery re- regulations at sea because we have the uh, the platforms to do it, and we work very closely with the National Marine uh, Fishery Service uh, to do that. And it's one of these things where you have to have unity of effort because one agency can't solve all the problems by themselves. And moving forward with the complexity we're dealing with in the environment and so forth, it pretty much has to be a team effort. And you have to be able to work across organizational boundaries to try and achieve the best results you can with the risks and the challenges that are out there.
1: And so I've never heard that phrase before on water enforcement. So as you're as the Coast Guard ships are out there patrolling and doing the enforcement work, how do they send back information to NOAA and EPA about where the fish are migrating? And how does all of that information get pulled together, as you mentioned, in a unity of effort for preservation purposes?
0: Well, any Coast Guard operating unit, whether it's a vessel or an aircraft, is a sensor. And we collect data on the uh, the vessels we encounter, and we also collect environmental data. And all that data goes back into a repository and the agencies that need and use it. So when we're operating out on the water and we're seeing fishing vessels or we're taking climatological uh, information, all of that ultimately gets back to uh, uh, NOAA, whether it's fisheries enforcement or their um, their weather center, that helps them uh, enhance their, their ability to, number one, do weather prediction, number two, to understand what's going on with the fishing fleets out there, where the fishing is moving to and where there might need to be enforcement. Uh, we many times carry uh, an agent from the National Marine Fisheries Service on our fisheries patrols with us so we can do joint enforcement with both Coast Guard officers that have the authority and the National Marine Fisheries Service agents uh, that has have authority as well.
1: And that's fascinating. And so then how do you pull all of that sort of domestic U.S. government information together into the international collaboration space when you're out, you know, on the open seas?
0: Well, there's both. I'd say there's a, a tactical, operational and a strategic level on how we do this. <laughs> Excuse me. Um, there are places where, because of the boundaries and the jurisdictions of the nations that are involved in their fishery zones, uh, that we're jointly managing boundary issues. Uh, the exclusive economic zones of the United States meet Cuba and the Bahamas in the southeast United States, and they meet Russia and the Bering Strait in Alaska. So... In many cases, we're having to manage the enforcement of our areas adjacent to other countries that are doing the same thing. And that requires us from time to time to interact with them and coordinate what it is that we're doing. And the same applies to our border with Mexico, both in the, in the Pacific and the Atlantic. Further up the uh, political food chain, if you will, we work with the State Department on international treaties and work on international engage- engagement with other Coast Guard-like organizations, both in the Pacific and the Atlantic and now in the Arctic. Uh, to coordinate uh, how we're uh, conducting our missions and when needed to how we uh, work with each other.
1: So as you engage in in both those domestic cross-agency coordination and also in the international space, have you observed some most promising practices to help address some of the threats to the fisheries?
0: Well, everybody has limited resources and, and the issue is trying to keep track, of, especially in fisheries, of illegal activities that are going on out there. So um, the term we use is maritime domain awareness, and that's being, being aware and understanding and collecting data and having an operational picture of what's happening out there, including the, the risk and the threats that are, that are, that are present. So there are parts of the world where there are vast, uh, unpatrolled areas of ocean. And what we're working very hard is to make, uh, uh agreements and cooperate with other, other countries uh, to share data, like on uh, when vessels are transiting through and they're, making sightings to share that information. So surveillance and uh, other information about the operations of what's going on out there and, and to the extent that we identify illegal fishing uh, to work with them. It's become important enough where uh, the Coast Guard is actually moving a cutter from the East Coast uh, to the Central Pacific to go down and assist our partner nations down there to improve their uh, their capability to enforce the fisheries, fisheries laws within their own exclusive economic zones.
1: Wow. So, I mean, if we think of the Coast Guard typically as a domestic enforcement agency, thinking about them in this international space, from your perspective, does it mark an expansion in mission or is it just sort of the logical consequence of what's happening in in the climate space?
0: Well, I would say it's the latter. It's a logical extension of our capability and capacity and applying our resources to the highest need. And that can change with national priorities. And it's going to involve, as we move forward, uh, more issues that are related to climate, because climate impacts fisheries enforcement. Climate ultimately impacts search and rescue operations, as we've seen with the uh, atmospheric Rivers that are hitting California and so forth. And climate and sea level rise impact uh, places like the North Slope of Alaska, where uh, where there used to be ice to would protect the shoreline. We now have Huge amounts of erosion that are going on up there that are requiring uh, native villages to actually be relocated. And of course, uh, the the greater open water uh, in the Arctic uh, that requires a presence up there, because as other vessels start to operate up there, we need to understand what's going on and be prepared to respond to anything that may occur.
1: Well, in fact, I want to dig into that next, because one of the other fascinating Coast Guard missions, that relates to the security of maritime transportation, and that gets directly into these open water ice routes. What? And I know Coast Guard has icebreakers, which is a ship I would never want to be on. I'm not that, that big of a fan of cold weather. But those folks seem to have a front row seat to some of the most compelling impacts of climate change. What are they seeing and how is that mission area tr- being transformed by climate change?
0: Well, we operate in both polar regions. In the South Pole, or Antarctica, we uh, deploy an icebreaker annually to break out McMurdo base, which is where the, the ships come in to resupply the base. And then from McMurdo base, they resupply the uh, South Pole Station. Uh, so Coast Guard icebreakers actually make the uh, make the way in for the commercial ships to, to resupply down there. At the same time, we deploy icebreakers to the Arctic, not, not for icebreaking per se, but they have to be ice-strengthened and ice-capable. Uh, to do research up there in support of uh, of NOAA and the other agencies that have an interest in uh, collecting data. The Cutter Healy routinely deploys out of uh, Seattle to the Arctic carrying a number of uh, scientists, National Science Foundation and NOAA and others uh, that are able to do research up there on what's actually going on uh, in the subsea area of the Arctic and also uh, taking other uh, meteorological uh, uh, data while they're up there. So we operate on both coasts. Our big challenge right now is uh, we've dwindled down to two icebreakers left in the U.S. fleet, and we're trying to build more right now. We've got the funding to do that, and we're we're trying very very hard to strengthen our fleet and build it back up. But uh, two is not enough to sustain our polar presence, at least in the view, my view, and I think the view of the Coast Guard leaders today.
1: So this is fascinating because obviously the the transportation routes have an impact on national security. So can you help us connect the dots between climate change in the maritime realm, what the Coast Guard is seeing, and the impact on national security?
0: Yeah, the, the Coast Guard would would term that the maritime transportation system. And we actually have strategies and a lot of working groups in the U.S. government, including the Committee on the Maritime Transportation System. Uh, that is uh, chaired by the Department of Transportation that we work closely with. Uh, and this has everything to do with, you know, recently with COVID and some other challenges. We've had supply chain problems uh, that have affected uh, the economic uh, processes in the United States. Uh, but actually, there are, there are a number of issues going on in the marine transportation system uh, that the Coast Guard is involved in. One of them is uh, reducing the use of fossil fuels. Aboard ships. And in doing that, we work very closely with the International Maritime Organization that is trying to reduce the amount of sulfur, which are uh, in very heavy sulfur maritime fuels, and look at alternative fuels and, in general, looking at the decarbonization of the maritime transportation system. And that's looking at alternative fuels, things like hydrogen, and also focusing on cleaner fuels like li- uh, liquefied natural gas. And the there's an overall attempt to do that one of the reasons we need to do that is that 95 percent of the uh, goods that come into this country come by sea and we are basically an island nation and uh, most of the world is covered with water and we're never going to get away from the fact that that stuff has to move on the water so we need a transportation system that doesn't add to the climate problems uh, regarding global warming and so forth and then the maritime transportation system itself has to be able to react to uh, the changes that uh, the changes in climate are causing, whether it's a, a sea level rise or, as we've seen lately, increases in um, in, in very uh, complex weather patterns uh, that impact uh, transportation systems. Uh, I don't think when I was growing up, anybody ever talked about as- uh, atmospheric rivers in weather forecasts. You hear it almost daily now. And what, what, what happens is with global warming, there's more water vapor from evaporation that goes into the upper atmosphere. And you remember a few years ago, we had an excess of 50 inches of rain in Houston for during Hurricane Harvey. You know, that water vapor could have been basically uh, uh, extracted from the Indian Ocean. And you don't know when uh, the uh, conditions are gonna be right where that actually uh, forms into some kind of a pattern that reduces, that produces rain. So what's gonna happen with the complexity of the changes in, uh, in climate, we're gonna have more rain in places where we didn't have it before. We won't have it where we need it. That's going to probably uh, increase uh, what I would call climate-driven migration issues all over the world, but most notably probably in, uh, in Africa and the, uh, in the Middle East and, and Southern Asia. So we've got all these things going on at the same time that all happened in the ocean where the Coast Guard operates. But it's also the lifeline for uh, commerce and transportation for the nation.
1: So are there particular investments that we should be making that are forward looking that help address some of this national security complexity around the water system that's related to climate change?
0: Well, some of this is already starting. Now, one of it if is you're going to move to alternative fuels and get away from fossil fuels. Then you have to change port infrastructure to be able to provide those fuels and be able to service the vessels that need to use it. And then you need to be concerned about the connection because when you have containers coming to the port of L.A. Long Beach, they could leave there on a truck or on a train and many other ways. So there's an interconnectedness of the maritime transportation system with the other multimodal ways that we move things around. So the infrastructure requirements to decarbonize and reduce our dependence on fossil fuels are going to require us to probably redesign or at least modify in in some ways, maybe in some ways very, very greatly. Uh, our port infrastructure,
1: so I have another sort of national security question um a little bit different because I know the Coast Guard's coastal security responsibilities also put them directly in the middle of the immigration issue. So is there a climate connection, a national security connection there, and what's the Coast Guard's role in helping to manage the immigration challenges, especially over the water?
0: Well, to the extent that we're going to see, and I believe we're going to see more, uh, climate-driven migration. In other words, uh, we're going to be faced with droughts and uh, natural resource problems where we have concentrations of people. Uh, that's probably going to force migration. Uh, I don't think we're seeing those causes show up as much in the Western Hemisphere and North America, but they're certainly happening in other places. Uh, migration from uh, North Africa to, to Europe and so forth. Uh, but it's not beyond the realm of possibility that those forces openly extend, uh, to people that wanting to, wanting to come to the United States, reaching Mexico and trying to cross the borders. We are in a situation right now where most of the challenges on our Southwest border don't involve Mexican migration. It's uh, countries other than Mexico that are using Mexico as a conduit to get into the country. And of course, the Coast Guard's concerned with the maritime routes in the uh, Pacific and the Atlantic on the Southwest border. And then most notably, uh, the migration threats posed by uh, Cuba and Haiti right now, which are probably the most prominent. Mm
1: -hmm. And so as you think about all of these things that we've talked about, the maritime transportation, the fisheries, the immigration challenges, and uh, you've been watching the seas literally for a very long time now, kind of a wide open question for you here. Are there priority actions or policies that you would recommend that could help us in the United States, but also in our international collaboration, take better care of this vital global resource.
0: Well, I think uh, this gets back to a basic uh, basic challenge of public administration, if you will, since this is a NAPA uh, <laughs> talk that we're having right now, and that's the allocation of scarcity. Uh, it, it always has been an issue, but allocating resources to the highest need or to meet the highest risk, is gonna become a bigger challenge. And in many cases, a lot of the missions, not only of the Coast Guard, but of government are based on historical trends or basically intuition or experience or expertise of the people that are making the decisions. And I think given what's going on in the world, uh, the entire government and the Coast Guard as a subset of that is gonna be driven to more evidence-based decision-making on how they're deciding where they're gonna put their resources and what kind of return they're getting on those resources. This plays right into, as you know, a number of disciplines in the public administration field. For instance, the Coast Guard just just established their first uh, chief uh, data analytics officer uh, to start looking at how all the data that we deal with comes together and can better inform the type of resources that we ask for and then how we deploy those resources. Uh, A a good example would be uh, if you have a cutter that's capable of being off South America to interdict drugs, and that same cutter could be in the South China Sea Dealing with freedom of navigation and issues in support of the uh, U.S. Uh, aims in the in the in the Western Pacific. Uh, which one of those do you do? And the term we, uh, used in the military is global force management. And so, my view, the challenge moving forward is going to come up with data-driven decisions related to resource allocation against a particular threat or mission, and that could be that could be. Uh, and, and we're already seeing a greater uh, emphasis on illegal fishing, uh, increased presence in the Pacific Rim, the Indo-Pac area, as, as the Department of Defense would say. But in the long run, in my view, the overarching challenge is a, both a cultural and a, a, a enterprise uh, a change approach to evidence-based decision-making rather than relying on our intuition and our experience. Uh, I was the 7th District Commander in Miami uh, a number of years ago. There are a bunch of traditional uh, judgments that you always needed two cutters in the Straits of Florida and two cutters in Windward Pass between Cuba and Haiti. I think as we move forward, we're going to have to be able to say what does the data tell us about the presence of Coast Guard units and what they're able to do, and where can we most effectively deploy them?
1: That's such a good point about the trade offs that we have to make in the investments. I'm also curious, I mean, I can imagine for the Coast Guard that climate change is a daily, urgent experience, but for many people, climate change is sort of this slow rolling, uh, slowly unspooling, happens somewhere else problem. How can we use the experience of the Coast Guard to help invigorate the conversation around these critical trade-offs and, and help people have a, a better vision for where we need to make those investments in the nearer term?
0: Well, I guess since this is a Napa conversation, I can I can give you what is maybe an amusing antidote. Uh, I remember I was at a, at a hearing. And I'll, I'll try and do this and not make it sound too stupid. I was at a hearing and I had a senator look over the top of his glasses at me one time and he said, uh, Alan, what is your opinion on global warming? Like, I was going to touch that in a public hearing. <laughs> so I looked at him and I said, uh, Senator, uh, there's water where there didn't used to be, and I'm responsible for it. I'm agnostic to the science. We're being presented with problems we have to deal with. And regardless of where you sit on global warming or climate change, the effects are out there. They're real. And we have to deal with them every day.
1: Well, I love that, that there's water where there didn't used to be. That is is the, the nexus, the nugget of what, what the Coast Guard's experiencing and what they're dealing with. So, Admiral Allen, I really appreciate the time you spent with us today just to highlight both these sort of unsung missions at the Coast Guard and how relevant they are to our grand challenge around protecting and conserving natural resources and responding to climate change, but also the role of public administrators in the middle of that. So thank you for your conversations today, and I'll congratulate you again on your Hall of Fame induction that's coming up.
0: Thank you very much. It was my pleasure.
1: For our listeners, check back every Monday for a new episode from the Academy as we work to build a just, fair, and inclusive government that strengthens communities and protects democracy.